welcome to Eventful, the podcast for meeting professionals. I'm your host, Lauren Edelstein with North Star Meetings Group. Eventful, the podcast, is our way of inviting you to join some of the interesting conversations we have with people in our business about topics that really should be on your radar. I look forward to hearing what you think, and please be sure to subscribe. I'm Sarah Braley, North Star's Managing Editor, and I'm here today with Jonathan Howe, the meetings industry's top legal mind, who is unfailingly gracious at sharing tips for event contracts during the pandemic. This podcast is taken from our recent webcast called Ask the Attorney, New Legal Issues for Event Planners and Suppliers, which can be found at northstarmeetingsgroup.com backslash legal webcast. Some of the topics we tackled for the program included whether you can require people to be vaccinated in order to attend an event, waivers and state protections against liability during the pandemic, attendees' personal responsibility at meetings, and changes to such clauses as cancellation, force majeure, and frustration of purpose. John, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. We're going to jump right in here. Let's start with attendees. What are the legal issues around whether you can require attendees to be vaccinated to attend an event? And can an organization prohibit a person who won't get a vaccination for a legitimate reason, such as a woman who is pregnant, from coming to the conference? Can you block them? Can What can you do? Well, Sally, thank you again for the opportunity to be with you and the participants here with the North Star Programming. Um, it's important, I think, that at this time we're going through a lot of legal issues and challenges that have been totally untested, and we will not really have a grasp on them as we until we go along a little bit further. But as to the question of mandatory vaccination, uh, if you look at some of the guidance that's been issued by government, and most particularly in the employment arena, yes, you can within limitations. And the limitations are primarily, does the person have something that they can use or say, that the vaccination would be detrimental to their health or to their religious views or the like. And there are exceptions to allowing someone to require vaccinations and not allowing them to participate in a program. Now, most meetings and events are conducted primarily by an organization which establishes the rules. Uh, If you wanna come to our event, you gotta pay X number of dollars to be a participant. That's a limitation. We have certain requirements, too, as to who might be eligible to come to our events and the like. So right now, I would say that it is permissible, though maybe not advisable, to say you can require someone to be vaccinated to come before they can come or attend your program. The bottom line is going to be, however, as we go forward, not everybody's going to be vaccinated. Uh, There are going to be people who, just as you said, are going to decline it because of medical reasons or otherwise, what are you going to do to make a reasonable accommodation for those people for purposes of attending your program? And do you really want to exclude them? I think similarly, what we've had too, is you may have requirements for participation, such as wearing a mask, adhering to social distancing. These are things that you need to let people upfront know in advance as to what is going to be required of them. Then we get down to the vaccination issue. What is proof of vaccination? We're now seeing the discussion of a vaccination passport. Many of us may recall going back a number of years that you would have that yellow card that was issued 
which would show all the vaccinations, whether it be for smallpox or polio or whatever. And that was sort of your passport to going forward. Already there's a cottage industry in the uh, counterfeiting of CDC certificates of vaccination. I'm happy to say I've got mine, which shows two shots of the dates they were given and so on so that I can qualify and show it. But am I going to be challenged when I present that certificate? Hey, John, is that a counterfeit or where did you get it or how did you obtain it and how we're going to have the verification? The old concept of trust but verify is going to be tantamount here. Will we now establish a national registry? I don't know. And then there are concerns as to privacy as to health records and medical requirements and things of a similar nature of moving those outside the protection of federal law into the public domain. Are we going to be able to use that CDC certificate or card? Um, how are we going to verify it and the like? Lots of questions, but I think what we want to do is even if you are going to look at the vaccination issue, what are you really doing beyond requiring vaccination? Are you going to be having safeguards such as mask wear, social distancing, and how you're going to lay out the, the per perspective of your meeting to make sure that people feel comfortable being there? Recently, I finally got back on an airplane after almost a year of not having been on a plane to go to a meeting. I will compliment the sponsors of the meeting for doing a really outstanding job and to the convention center, which was really on top of it, not only as a standpoint of being able to make sure people who were in attendance were at least minimally checked with a thermal answering questions as to what their current status was and the like. And it worked very well. I think people felt Where were you, John? I was in Charlotte, North Carolina. I was down for RCMA, RCMA Religious Conference Management Association, that had a meeting, about 300 people who were there. The Charlotte Convention Center, I really thought, had their act together to give them not necessarily a plug, but to acknowledge that they had it. And I know that other convention centers across the country are similarly situated in their attention to the detail that's necessary to at least provide an assurance initially of we're doing the best we can protect you and the health of the people who are coming into our facility. Well, and for that, people can look for the GBAC, Global Virus Accreditation, that uh, shows that they are adhering to certain very strict cleanliness protocols. It, it, it's not only that. I mean, for example, the sessions would last with a separation between sessions of about 30 minutes, which allowed a cleaning crew to come in and literally dust down, mop down, and clean up everything in that particular room before the next group came in. So again, my hats are off to convention centers, which have taken the extra steps, not cheap, but necessary under these circumstances. Keeping with the attendee drive here, there's a lot of talk about waivers and state protections against liability for the hosts and for the host venue. Do those cover the hosts and the venue? And where does personal responsibility come in in this? Well, let's take the latter, personal responsibility. If you decide that you're going to go to a meeting, you have basically taken on and uh, basically saying, I am accepting the risk of going to that meeting. But I think on the other side of the coin is you've accepted the risk, but have they accepted the risk of you being there? And so you have to have these agreements upfront as to what kind of deportment you're going to conduct yourself with i.e. adhering to 
mask wearing as may be required, uh, social distancing as may be required, submitting to the temperature challenge and the like. Those are things that are going to be required. Now, a lot of planners and a lot of facilities are requiring somebody to sign a waiver as a condition before they can get on premises or attend the meeting. And that waiver basically says, hey, I am assuming the risk that by virtue of my coming to your program, I might come in contact with the coronavirus or I may come in contact with that matter with anybody else who may have something different, but I am accepting that as my risk and therefore I'm going to waive any liability that you might have. Now, having said that, we still have the responsibility that the facility, the venue, and the sponsor needs to be exercising due care in how they conduct themselves. And, you know, an example I like to use over the years has been I go and I put myself in winter in very warm clothing. I put my feet in a pair of vices. I attach them to very slender, long boards. I go up, I place my fanny in a metal basket attached to a thin wire and defy gravity of going to the top of the ski lift. But when I bought my ski lift ticket, there was a kiosk there, and over the kiosk it had a sign. It says, hey, monkey skiing is a lot of fun, but you may have a problem. You might run into a tree. A tree may run into you. Somebody may run into you. You may fall down. You may break a leg. You might even die. Have a nice day. And by virtue of my buying that ski lift ticket, I have assumed the risk, having been informed of what the risks are. But let's take that same example. I'm skiing down the slope. I'm having a really wonderful day. My turns are great. I'm really getting the groove. And I make a left and a right. And I come and all of a sudden I find myself 90 feet in the air because I went down the trail that led to the ski jump. Well, the ski jump notification wasn't there. Did I assume the risk that they would not have proper signage to give me the guidance that I needed in order to be able to accept the risk. And so those are the things we have to look at. Even though you may have a waiver, even though you may have an assumption of risk, doesn't necessarily mean you're off the hook. Let's move it back one, one space. What about the person who is under the age of 18 or legal age in that particular jurisdiction? Who has the right to give up those rights or to assume the risk? In some states, a parent can do that. In some states, the parent can do that. But by, when that child reaches age 18, they have the right to renounce what the parent did. So we need to look at all the ramifications. And so you need to check what are the rules in that jurisdiction where you're holding the program as to those waivers and the like. It's a tricky business, but it's one that I don't want to say to you, don't do it. I'd say, know what you're doing before you do it. Let's uh, move on to actual clauses that in the contract, obviously, a lot of people are doing more virtual or more hybrid events. One question asks, how do cancellation clauses differ for hybrid events? Well, I think with the cancellation of a hybrid event, you have two factors. When you're doing a hybrid event, let me just make this observation. It's not cheap to do a hybrid event. It's not easy to do a hybrid event. You're really planning two and a half events at the same time because your audiences are going to be different. The needs and the demands are going to be different as to what's going on. Also, your ability to plan realistically as to knowing what your dynamics are going to be and the number of people who are going to show up face-to-face -face versus those who are going to show up in the hybrid or virtual arena 
is very hard to predict. What we're looking at, too, is when you do a hybrid meeting, you are now using a digital method of communication. You're on the Internet. And so that means that that presentation, that program, does not have boundaries. It's, it's out to the world, so to speak, unless you have limitations by virtue of passwords or so on, limiting people to participate. We also have some issues as to privacy and consent, let's say, when you're doing a Zoom meeting where you have people's images up there, have you gotten their permission to use their image? So again, when you're doing a hybrid and the kinds of ramifications liability-wise, first start with the attendees, second start with the presenters as to what limitations they have relative to their utilization, let's say, of intellectual property of someone else. You're now spreading that intellectual property. And if they don't have the approval or the consent to use that, you might be considered as an organizer to vicariously publishing that data, which would make you subject to infringement on those particular individuals' intellectual property or trademarks. So we have a whole different deal. We have a different set of contracts that we use for the hybrid than we do for the face-to-face -face versus the virtual. Though I will say what you're doing when you're doing the hybrid, you're taking the virtual programming contracts and the face-to-face -face contracts and trying to come to a reasonable accommodation between the demands and needs of both. I know that this is one that a lot of people are, I think there's like, probably a hundred different permutations of this question in our list of questions that have come in, which is, is there language that planners can put in their contracts to ensure a full refund of all monies, including deposits, in case another COVID type situation sh uh, shutdown comes along? You can put anything you want to in a contract <laughs> to limit your liability. The problem is getting the other side to agree to it. And, and so that's, been the issue of negotiations going back and forth. Yeah, I can I can write a contract clause. It doesn't necessarily mean somebody's going to accept it. And certainly in this environment, you know, we learn by our experiences. Yeah, I get burned once. I don't want to get burned again as we go down the pike. So when we look at the whole thing with COVID and communicable diseases, we've we've had communicable disease issues since the plague back in the mid-century the dark ages. We can just think about what we've experienced in the last 20 years with Legionnaire's disease, with Zika's, and with other aspects. And of course, every year we have the flu. And many people die from the flu still, even though vaccinations are available to them and their ability to take some steps to prevent it are still there. So the real, the real key concern here that I have we can try to minimize the risk that we're going to take. And the way we do that is by the contracts we draft and getting the other side to basically agree to what we have put on paper or in our digital communications as being acceptable to them. It's a give and take, but we can anticipate in no small part with COVID that both sides had reason to invoke a force majeure clause. If the hotel cannot perform, it doesn't want to be stuck on the obligation to perform any more so than the planner wants to be stuck on the requirements of being able to perform when it's really made impossible or illegal. 
What's the trend at this point with deposits, escrow accounts, you know, holding monies and getting back monies that that you've put down already? What's what's going on there? Well, the whole the whole issue of deposits has certainly become important over the last 13, 14 months as to is the hotel going to be around or has it closed its doors? We have seen probably 25 percent of the hotels in America today are closed and are not going to reopen. We've seen this, whether it be a big, huge convention center type of hotel or down to the boutique, they've all been impacted. So the purpose of a deposit is to assure performance at a later date. When we go to an escrow, and I think escrows are becoming more and more in vogue than they ever have before to assure performance. An escrow is an agreement between the parties and a third party who will hold the money and only pay it out if the terms and conditions that the other two parties have agreed to fall into play. So if suddenly the meeting professional planner is not able to perform, even though the hotel is perfectly prepared, meets all its financial and legal obligations, and the organization breaches the contract by not performing, the escrow agent then releases the money to the venue. Conversely, if the hotel goes bankrupt or goes out of business, the money gets released back to uh, the organization. It's a protection. Now, on international meetings in particular, many European hotels require a 100% deposit against the contract. That's one of those situations where you definitely want to consider an escrow or another device that you can use as a standby letter of credit which basically is similar to an escrow, except you don't put all the money up. It's it's an assurance by a bank or trustee that the money is there, not necessarily encumbered at that point, but the standby letter of credit says, if such and such happens or doesn't happen, then the money is released pursuant to the letter of credit. Uh, Again, a complicated situation that can be made a lot easier by making sure you retain and hire somebody who knows what they're doing. And there are a number of firms out there and escrow firms that are designed to work in the meetings arena, which can be very helpful to you, save you a lot of heartache and headache. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review us and check back for new episodes soon.